Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. You want to get started? <laughs> we got our juices flowing a little bit. Now we can get okay. going. Okay. Hey, I'm here with John and Matt, and tonight we are going to talk about our upcoming class, Marginalization and Restorative Justice. Have I said it right, John? Yes, I believe so. And John, he's going to be teaching the class, and so Matt and I are going to grill him closely. That's uh, right. Uh, <laughs> about the direction that he's taking. And the book that you're using is Marvin Mitch, The Challenge of Spirituality of Catholic Social Teaching, right? Yeah, I think it's The Challenge and Spirituality of Catholic Social Teaching. The Challenge and Spirituality of Catholic Social Teaching. Why this book, John? This book is, in some sense, the counterpart to all of the other readings that are scans and uploads from various sources. And I chose this book because I thought it would bring some cohesion to what otherwise may seem like randomly chosen ideas and topics for exploration. Essentially, most people, it seems like sometimes Roman Catholic in the United States, uh, certainly Protestants are not aware of the tradition of Catholic social teaching that forms a body of work from uh, Leo the Thirteenth, even up until now, through papal encyclicals and writings about them. But on the flip side of that, it's not as if it is a purely Roman Catholic phenomenon. So that in Anglicanism, especially, I'm sure in other forms of Protestantism, there is an idea that there should be a Christian social teaching. The Roman Catholic Church simply has sort of definable body of Catholic social teaching that can be referred to. So that's to bring cohesion to a bunch of what may seem like disparate ways into this conversation. The conversation being, how do we develop a self-understanding of the identity of Christ so that what we mean when we say we are followers of Christ or Christians has social implications in the world, essentially being that Jesus's ethic is one in which he would come and sacrifice himself for the life of the world. And what we are most acquainted with is the opposite of that, which is that we would sacrifice, oppress, enslave others for our own lives, or we do that on corporate scales. John has, has written a blog to describe the class that has not been published yet, but we're going to publish it. But in the blog, you describe your the use of this book in conversation and in, in community. And, and you seem to give a key role to dialogue or conversation. I wonder why. I actually didn't use the book at all. Oh, <laughs> the book was specially chosen for forging plowshares. Oh, okay. uh, so the class, the way that I have taught this material, the rest of the material before, 
is through excerpts, things ranging from Pope Francis's Laudato Si to thinking about Shisaku Endo's Silence, the Martin Scorsese's film adaptation, but also with reference to like a Japanese new wave version of that film uh, that is from the 1970s and a scholarly article by Matthew Potts who is at the University of Chicago, and he's thinking about Christian identity in terms of both films and the book. Also looking at things like the history of German Bible interpretation and why that passed for being objective Bible interpretation. Uh, Looking at how feminists and womanist theologians come and read the Bible differently than we do. Because essentially why we need all of these different voices is that all theology in some sense is contextual. So we don't do theology according to some objective standard that can be discovered and shared by all people in exactly the same dogmatic formulation. That's a really bad way of doing orthodoxy. Uh, And my best example is sort of pre-Vatican II Roman Catholicism exported the Latin mass in such a way that it didn't matter if you were South Korean, Filipino, or French, you needed to do the mass in exactly the same way. Vatican II, of course, came along and said, isn't the meaning the point rather than the dogmatic formulation? Isn't indeed the dogmatic formulation translatable? Of course, people said yes at that point, though uh, apparently that's even up for grabs now. So I think this point is worth making. So to say that all theology is contextual means simply that we must acknowledge ourselves, what we're aware of, what we're not aware of, our own ability to measure up to the theological conversation. Uh, In other words, how reasonable can we be? How responsible can we be uh, pursuing theological truth? What biases get in the way? And hopefully, uh, when we have that conversation, we are able to have a heightened awareness of what it is that we're doing when we're doing theology, where we're coming from, and our horizons expand. When our horizons expand, then no longer is theology a sort of bludgeoning stick that can be used from centers of power to keep people in line, uh, such that the church becomes just another arm of the powers of empire, as was so often the case historically. But voices that we now call marginalized become heard. And we understand that the whole truth of God uh, is heard as a cacophony of these different voices, all praising the Lamb who was slain uh, in ways that make sense to them, but is also true and authentic to the life of Christ. So that's where this dialogical piece comes in. In other words, if you're teaching a class about theology as restorative justice and one that needs to listen to marginalized voices, The best approach is probably not to lecture all of the time. Uh, I think uh, Virginia Woolf actually had a big shtick about lecturing and male authors who used, I think, believe as she called it, the large phallic eye, uh, explaining everything constantly. Uh, So she tried to develop a sort of style that was more dialogical and uh, straight away from that. But... Uh, what I and I bring her up because she also still was able to appreciate people like Milton and uh, Yates and these people who came before her. 
I think that's the trouble. What we don't want to do is pretend that now we've gotten theology all right, and then we end up doing just the same thing, which is to create a new hegemonic center that shuts other people up. And so dialogue always has to be at the center of theology. And and, and I'm rambling now, but I'll give Karl Barth a plug. I think he thought about theology not so much even as just God talk, even God talk between you and me, but is creating a space for God to talk to us. And I, I think that's also what happens in dialogue. I am afraid people might get the wrong idea here, and you're saying something that's very profound, and that is we might have the idea uh, that the gospel is in some way, you know, relative, or... And I, I think the answer to that is, yeah, it is. It, it is relative to culture. It's relative to society. Not that society or culture is the determining factor in the the gospel, but if the gospel is not addressing people of a particular culture or society, well, then it's not addressing anyone. <laughs> so it has to be contextual. Because uh, essentially you're saying that doesn't mean that we become relativists. Yeah, yeah. It can be relative, and you're not being a relativist. You know, this is part of the problem in some contextualization, you know, in mission studies. I'm afraid it can be uh, completely relative. And and I, I'm curious about your use of Shusako Endo and silence, obviously coming from the, the Japanese context. Because I think that there may, in fact, be a legitimate and an illegitimate notion that is encapsulated in Endo's understanding of culture and Christianity. But Endo's not alone here. I think that Endo is just kind of reflective of a Japanese Christianity that has very much been caught up in this problem of Christ and culture, or specifically Japan, Japanese-ness, and Christianity. So why, what what do you do with Endo? So uh, I don't exactly use him to make this point, but I do use him to set it up. And it's interesting the way you were talking a moment ago, because Matthew Potts in his article assessing the novel and the films, uh, the two films, is going to say something very similar. So I find the story of silence, the the literary retelling, forget the historical events, but I find the literary retelling interesting because it forces us to wonder whether or not the identity of Christ is in fact so vacuous and so malleable that the way of following Christ was to repudiate Christ, become a Buddhist, and all of this for the love of the neighbor, right? So that's that's there. The, the issue, though, uh, if we then turn to history, is that, of course, historically, what happens is that Japan is not unscathed by its interactions with the Western powers. So that Japan ends up becoming uh, the white Asian nation of sorts that then is a colonial power itself and wants to spread its own idea of culture uh, as an ideal, a sort of classicist ideal to other peoples by force and subjugation. And uh, as you've pointed out, I think you have, uh, what is it, a, re a relative, a nephew-in-law who wrote his whole dissertation on this that 
when the Meiji Restoration is going on and state Shinto is becoming the religion of Japan, they are literally looking towards the Church of England's relationship with the English monarchy and the British Empire to create a pattern for consolidating and manufacturing the sort of uh, Japanese identity. So I find that story provocative in this way that I want people to struggle with this question. What does it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean rather for the Jesuit missionaries to follow Christ? Are they truly following Christ by becoming Buddhists? What is the identity of Christ that vacuous? Or in fact, are there some core beliefs that you have to hold to be a follower of Christ? What's going on in that interaction? But I don't find the answer there, to be honest. I just, I find the provocative beginning of a conversation. I think the answer to this question is better understood in what is my next class session following that. And it's an article by Suzanne Schultz. It's called Lederhosen Hermeneutics. And she recounts the fact that in the 20th century and 19th century, German theologians would have told you that they were the most scientific and most objective theologians anywhere. So everybody, if they want to be a good theologian, should do theology like the Germans. And she points to a particular individual who actually is able to stand up to the Nazis in sort of a perverse way by inculcating that idea of German theology within himself to an extreme. Gerhard von Rod is not a Nazi, and he is able, he's a Hebrew Bible scholar, and he's basically saying that he can continue on being a Hebrew Bible scholar, even in the Nazi era, without and his claim is rather that his Hebrew Bible scholarship doesn't threaten the Nazis. So he's working at the same time within the German church, uh, or the confessing church rather, to subvert the Nazis in some ways, but he's able to hold on to his university position by making claims that Bible, Bible scholarship is so neutral that it need not be a threat. You know, he might as well be studying Plato or anything else. What Suzanne Schultz is going to point out is that actually that notion of reading the Bible in a purely historical, objective lens is only possible within the context of Germany. And now today, uh, or if you think about even in the United States, if that was the claim, then the Bible would have lost all of its effective power for uh, the civil rights movement or actually really abolitionist causes before that, which were able to read especially the Hebrew Bible in such a way that it provided strategies of hope against slavery. Uh, it provided a sort of spirituality that allowed for slaves to cope with their position and hope for better and even put that hope into practice. And so you can also, in this country, of course, trace the way the black church forms political bodies that lead to the civil rights movement that we know about, the one in the 60s, but that that's already happening in prior decades. And it is through reading the Bible, not as some objective historical thing, 
but within their own context, being able to read themselves into the scripture or making the scriptural meaningful to where they're at. And so she says that essentially you only get this idea of a purely objective way of reading the Bible because that is pertinent to the history of German Bible reading. But that is not something uh, that would make sense in all times and all places everywhere. So you can grapple with that a little bit and see where contextual theology makes sense because contextual theology says I might have an authentic and true, reasonable way of reading the Bible, even if it doesn't turn everything into history. And that turning everything into history is not simply the most logical uh, or accurate way of reading the scriptures, but is a methodology of reading the scriptures that arises itself in a particular historical context. I'm curious because, I mean, she's using a guy who didn't become a Nazi, but it seemed like the methodology that he shared with his German comrades is precisely the opening to a Nazi understanding. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and so I think, and more to her point, is that if we stay there, like, what does that offer us now? There's no political theology there at all, which is the same thing as we were just talking about in Indo's version of the Jesuit uh, the Jesuits following Christ by apostatizing, oh. you're asking the same question. Is Christian identity so vacuous that it can just mean anything? The first part of this class is pushing that way, because really we start with Laudato Si. Pope Francis is going to give us an account of the climate crisis and say, at the end of the day, you as the individual living the best green life you can is not going to make a difference. And that it's actually a lie that the corporations like to tell to put the onus on you when it really ought to be on them. But how do you live authentically? Uh, how do you live with yourself? And to do that, you need some sort of spirituality uh, that says I can live with less and my own actions are not going to be an affliction upon the earth and other people. So you have to have both and, right? Well, then the way the course progresses from there is to point out the problems, in a sense, the problems where we might feel powerless, uh, where it seems like the forces of empire or the principalities and powers of the ages are crushing us. And uh, what would be the point? How do we find truth here? Uh, and it is to say that we need the real possibility of a political theology that not only allows us to be comfortable with ourselves, but also that we form communities that are true alternatives that already breathe the air of the New Jerusalem rather than the air of Babylon. So the example, as you described that I was thinking of, is slavery. You know, we kind of have a twofold relationship, and we see that developed in Scripture. One is that, well, as Christians, we're not really in the business of uh, leading a slave rebellion, you know, along with Spartacus. On the other hand, uh, as Christians, the implication of the gospel does seem to be in the church an overthrow of the relationship that is to be had in slavery. And by slavery here, you, know, you could expand this to talk about imperialism, colonialism, yeah. so that there's a twofold thing that's happening. Uh, to live with ourselves, and ourselves in this instance means Christians. What we do in the church 
is going to have to be in some way a recognition of that cultural norm as being undone in Christ, and also a recognition that the powers that be then stand over and against the culture, the politics of the church. In a sense, I think it's counterintuitive, but the most radical thing you can do is follow Jesus and loving your neighbor. Like that is the most radical, uh, you know, revolutionary response that one can make or that is the heroic stand against the powers and principalities. But it can feel like such a small thing that you need some sort of what I would just call a, a robust and true authentic Christian spirituality to sustain that way of living. So that loving the neighbor may in fact be a kind of dissident. Subversive. Yeah, yeah, that it, that it is subversive in instances because the very nature of the powers that be is to exclude and and even not count some people as neighbors. And so it is this kind of the the slave, you know, Christ dies as a slave outside the city. And and I notice in the chapter titles here the book is appealing to liberation theology in its definition. I'm wondering how liberation theology might be employed here. When we love our neighbors, when we form Christian communities, uh, whether that's simply in the parish church or whether that's a movement that catches on, uh, such as like the redemptive edge of a civil rights movement or something like that, that we expect for the material conditions of some people's lives to change. So I think you can say both things, and that is that the goal of the church is not to conquer the world in one sense. The goal of the church is not to uh, create a Christian government or Christian state that enforces love, because then you've already lost the narrative, I think. But uh, we do expect for the material conditions of people to change when you begin to love with the love of Christ. And in the gospel, often this is associated with the wonders or the miracles or the signs that Jesus does. But I think another way of thinking about it is how a group of people who follow Christ by the end of those gospels and then the book of Acts have been transformed into a radical community that the Spirit then leads on to go do this in the rest of the world, sort of the greater works that you will do. Uh, sort of thing. So I think there are real-world implications, and in that sense, it always is a liberation theology. That apart from liberating the slaves, apart from the the real-world manifestation of the principalities and powers in their oppression of particular peoples and Christians facing that oppression and opposing it, uh, Christianity it just seems to become irrelevant even as I'm saying this, I think it's a contradiction. I'm not sure it can even play the role of a personal piety in a situation in which the embodied reality is in some way giving in to the powers of oppression. Yeah, well, it, it becomes a mask, right? Yeah. How, how do you get to the deep psychology of any person? You know, this this is, uh, I can't remember if it's N.T. Wright that talks about, you know, when Moses comes and says, let my people go. If uh, Pharaoh had said, well, Moses, tell me exactly what you mean by that. Do you mean spiritually 
and mentally? And will they continue to make bricks? In other words, I think that a modern kind of Christianity, although we call it evangelicalism, it seems more pervasive than that, would almost answer that question and shout, yeah, we just we don't mean literally that we're going to do something. This is just a, a spiritual thing and will not in, interfere in any way with brick production. I imagine that Pharaoh would, would readily agree to that kind of letting the people go. So I hear an implicit asking of what exactly am I meaning when I say spirituality? And uh, what I would say is I have a friend actually who has just written a book for Orbis Books that's called Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide. And it's uh, advocating that Christian spirituality is not best done, closed up, cloistered, separate from the world, but rather Christian spirituality is done in our engagement with people who are hurting, uh, people who need the love of Christ. And it's a book, I believe, of stories that make that point over and over again from his own life. But a part of what I understand Christian spirituality to be, and not just Christian, but this would, a Buddhist would say something similar, is that in spirituality, Christian spirituality, we are acclimating ourselves to the life of Christ that the Holy Spirit manifests in us, such that we are beginning to understand what it means to be fully human in light of the full stature of Jesus Christ, and that in doing that, we begin to understand the world not as it is formed as the world of darkness, but rather the world according to God, that the light of God pervades and, um, well, you know, and allows us true understanding of according to how God would have it be. That then allows you to live in the world, not as the world of darkness or the world of lies or as uh, we were talking earlier, a false incarnation of the world or creaturely existence, but rather according to the incarnation of Christ, the way things actually are, a true reality, understanding what is most real about ourselves and each other is, in a sense, the way we are interdependent uh, upon one another, interconnected and dependent upon God, uh, the way in which we need each other to be whole, to become people. Uh, the way that Christianity has to be played out in a community rather than as a solitary or sort of mental thing. Uh, that's what I think an authentic spirituality is getting at. That there's no, the notion of a kind of radical individualism is already a lie. It's already a kind of false understanding. And the way that we're formed as human beings is in community. So that I guess that that speaks, it is a kind of indictment against the church's acceptance through the ages of slavery, in that is it possible for one who is a slave and treated as a slave, even in the community of the saved, is it even possible for him to come to a full, healthy realization of you know, the, the koinonia or the brotherhood of Christ? I would think the answer is no. That the only way that we come to the fullness of our personhood is in community. 
And if the community is sick, if the community is not reflective of Christian social teaching, I mean, I think that's where people may, the, the social part of this may, people may get the wrong idea. Oh, you're doing that social gospel stuff. Well, I don't know that there's a gospel that's not social, that's an authentic gospel. I presume that's what we mean also by spirituality. There is not an authentic spirituality that is, it has to be embodied. So two things. One, I want to say that I think this is why contextual theology is, the idea that theology is contextual is so important. And that if we're reading, say, Paul's letter to Philipp, uh, to Philemon, rather, Paul is probably the client in a patron-client relationship with Philemon, meaning that Paul is one who writes from below to one who is above him and essentially creates a wonderful argument that I think comes to the conclusion there is no way Onesimus can remain a slave. But that is not where we stand as Americans in the 21st century. And so when we have this conversation, in no way can we pretend like we are, even as Christians, are those that are marginalized or those that uh, write from below. Rather, as Americans, we are people who have to grapple with the fact that we uh, have the equivalent of Roman citizenship. We are the citizens of the empire. Uh, we are the wealthiest people in the world and our great wealth has come at the expense of others. Uh, if you're a white American, that means that you benefit from a system that has years of accruing wealth, status, and power based on the oppression, subjugation, and literal enslavement of other people. So when we have this conversation, it can't just be some objective sort of thing, right? Uh, in other words, we're already a part of a story, uh, our own history, that places us in, in need of repentance. And this is what spirituality does. It's the constant reminder you do not have life in and of yourself, but your life has to be found in the love of God. But that has the second movement of that has practical implications, as you said, embodied implications, which is to say, if I look around at my neighbors and indeed even my enemies and think that I have to somehow generate enough love in and of myself for them, to be a Christian, I already know, I have some anxiety that I'm going to fail. But because the task of spirituality is constantly to remind oneself in great humility that we do not secure our lives in the world, but our lives are secured by the love of God in Christ, it is not with our own finite lives that we are to be open to the world, really, but to our neighbors, enemies, etc. But it is with the life of God and the love of Christ which is what makes this possible, in other words. It enables us to do what would otherwise be impossible. I'm curious in the class, I mean, I'm immediately thinking of somebody like Cones, the cross and the lynching tree. Do you de deal with white, black experience in the course? Yeah, I do. And I, as this was developed for my parish church context, I thought I was giving people a break uh, on this week. So instead of having a book that was already written as a conscious theology, I shared a, an interview by M. Sean Copeland, who is a black woman theologian uh, at Boston College, I believe is where she's still at now. 
And she talks about her own social location, uh, coming to a theological consciousness, all in the context of growing up in Detroit and growing up at a time when there was civil unrest and race riots, etc. And so she shares how that informs her own experience uh, and indeed how that even leads her to become a theologian uh, and also then how she sees a theological task is one that has to address real life. I happen to have gone through the book of Philemon and part of the sad history is not just the church's reaction to slavery or non-reaction, but it's almost marked then by the reception and interpretation of the book of Philemon. You know, when we read that book in a, a kind of modern age, we read that and say, well, it's clear, Paul, you can't, Philemon cannot treat Onesimus as a slave any longer, that he's a brother, that he's standing in the very place of Paul, that this is Paul's heart. I, you know, the conclusion just seems just so obvious. And yet that obvious interpretation, that obvious understanding, is a minority position in the long history of interpretation in the church. And you can just go through from the early church, clear through to the Reformation, uh, you know, not to mention the, during the period in, in the United States, in the period of slavery, that that book, rather than being used to dismantle slavery, has been consistently a piece in an argument that Christianity is primarily a conservative religion in which one learns to know their place. Which is what I would call an ethically irresponsible way of doing theology. And indeed, what has happened in that sort of reading is we have already let the ethics of empire shape the way we do theology so that we have, uh, it's not theology anymore, because it isn't a conversation that leads us to the truth of all things as they cohere in God, but rather it is a reading and a discussion uh, that I think always comes as a weapon to destroy the other person and to cause division. I think of another example is the way people have read the curse of Ham. Ham comes in and sees Noah naked or something like that. We're not really for sure how to translate that passage. And then it's cursed be Canaan. And that in the United States was applied to black people. So that the curse is that you're black. And because you're cursed, it gives white people the right to enslave you and do whatever they want to you uh, and your children. Uh, and that is has a long history of reception of being used that way in the United States so that we forget that the Bible is not some neutral ground of people coming to it and trying to find uh, truth about how to live their lives or who is God. But the Bible, because it has been the book that most people were acquainted with in the history of European expansion slash Europe for the last, you know, 1500 years, uh, the Bible always gets used to justify whatever opinion somebody takes, which is, again, my push towards a contextual theology. It's none of this is neutral. We all I, already stand within narratives, streams of history. Right. And, and, and to not recognize that is to be co-opted by the powers. And so I'm wondering, I, this is just a question, I, if in the class, in the course, you know, you're talking about human dignity, respect for all lives, the 
you know, the picture of, of recognizing the poor. And yet, uh, I guess that in one construction of the human city, human culture, that, well, that's not really an option in most cultures, because culture and law is founded on the notion of inclusion and exclusion. It is founded on the notion of, you know, in Giorgio Agamben's phrase, the homo sacred, that in some way, bare life is made human life within the confines of the city. I mean, that's really the argument here. I think you could say this is the argument in the case of abortion. The same argument has been made in the case of slavery. Yes, but some human lives that we imagine are human are not really human. And so isn't there a kind of necessity for the deconstruction of the very notion of the law, the polis, the city of man? Yeah, I think this is like the language of provisional dualism is really helpful here because becoming a Christian and living in a Christian community does not fill out your way of life so much that you're not going to have some sort of cultural norms, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, we should recognize, or I, I mean, people have recognized, that Christianity, by its nature, this is what you're pointing out, is subversive to the city of man. And I think that's also true for the very thing that you pointed out. As soon as you say that we no longer can cohere as a people because we're willing to kill or oppress or enslave everybody that's not like us, in fact, we may be more like those people across the border uh, than the people who are hell-bent on killing them uh, as Christians. As soon as you're willing to say that, that is a very subversive stance. In one sense, there is always this implicit threat to the powers. But the way this is played out in this temporal space that we live in is such that, one, None of us are that consistent in our Christianity to make to make it actually uh, you know a realized threat. And two, because that's the case, it is not implicitly wrong to hope for social change where it can be found. In the words of St. Paul, if you can gain your freedom, by all means do it. But otherwise, you know, be the best Christian you can be. He can say that because he's, I think, in, in truth there, he's writing himself as a sort of outcast, whereas that's not the sort of language we can use. But I don't think it was any wrong thing for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to pressure Lyndon Johnson to pass the, you know, sign the segregation, the, the integration bills that are signed. At the same time as Christians, and I think King knew this, you can't be satisfied with that. You can't legislate a change in people's hearts. You can't legislate away sin. You can't legislate away the forces of empire. So you take the small wins where you can, and you work in that way uh, when possible. But at the same time, you recognize that that's not the goal of Christianity. So and I'll explain it like this. I've noticed this in my own experience being uh, an Episcopal priest down here where I'm at. I get uncomfortable around parishioners who were former Roman Catholics or often black in the way they want to approach church and politics. 
But I recognize why I get uncomfortable and I justify it with these theological notions of, well, the, you know, the, the church isn't here to change the state, or as you said, the city of man is always going to be corrupt in this way, that the church is always going to be threatening to it, so shouldn't we just have an alternative community? I can say all that because I got a pretty good life. But if your very existence is uh, determined on some sort of political action and social change to make the next 10 years or the next 50 years better for you or your children, you're going to do that. And Christianity has the resources to sustain uh, that sort of communal action. And I've noticed for me, I need to get over being uncomfortable and get out of the way and help out where I can. What you're saying is it may be too easy to describe the church as countercultural if you don't take into account, yeah, but you have to also recognize we're all inundated and shaped and formed and depended upon the culture of which we're a part. So it's no easy thing, and I guess at some level it's an impossible thing. We can't totally extract ourselves from culture, but I guess we can extract ourselves from a particular way of understanding that culture uh, in Christian nationalism or any kind of nationalism, Japanese nationalism, fascism uh, of any kind. That is that we have to do both things. We have, we have to recognize the church is countercultural, and yet we are still dependent upon and partakers of that culture. Or you could say it in this way, the church is true in a way that the cultures of this world will never be. It actually isn't locked in some sort of dia, you know, uh, diametrically opposed struggle with the culture because they're not the same sort of thing in the first place. But I, I think this again, and I think it's Cornell West who actually talks this way about Martin Luther King Jr. But what he was able to do was to work with Congress on the one hand, work with President Johnson on the one hand to get legislation passed, and then the very next day go out and say, but this war in Vietnam's unjust, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care that you're my buddy. Uh, yeah. I'm still going to go out and march and protest. And, and I think that's the move that we have to be willing to make. Whereas what has happened you can look how uh, evangelical, you can look at how Billy Graham dealt with power. Billy Graham thought, nah, there's some things I can't say because now I have this relationship. I have this in into the White House. And so I think famously it was actually uh, Graham was not willing to support uh, King on some issues for that very reason. King was saying, hey, look, I'll work with you. You've got a lot of influence. You know, come out and help. And Graham was only willing to go so far because he didn't want to burn those bridges. Whereas King was willing to advocate for what he knew to be right. And then because there were some things that were a bridge too far that were right, he was willing to burn those bridges. In the words of Uchimura Kanzo, to go back where we started, who is very much like Shusako Endo in reifying culture. Uchimura Kanzo is perhaps the most famous Japanese Christian. And he says, who do I love more? Do I love Jesus or do I love Japan? And of course, it's a kind of false choice in which he's picturing Japan, first of all, as a, uh, the same substance, and then picturing it as, as if they're necessarily opposed. 
But of course, in his world, uh, he could not reconcile Japanese culture, being Japanese, with being Christian. You know, maybe in this culture, we have the opposite problem. We too readily reconcile those things. Yeah, I'm a, I'm an American, and therefore I'm a Christian, or I'm a Christian, and therefore I'm an American. You know, Christian nationalism has captured people in such a way that they really can't make that distinction, or you can make the distinction so hard and fast that there is a necessary antagonism. And so I think neither is is completely true. There is the sense that, yes, we're all shaped by culture, but that is not our, our final or ultimate identity. Yeah, I think that's right. So that uh, culture where we live even, it's really hard to sort this stuff out, really, uh, in the sense of what is shaping us who we are essentially, and what is simply part of what it means to be a creature in time and space that isn't essential to our identity. But I would just say that a lot of what we take to be so true about ourselves is only true in the here and now, and is already passing away. And what is true about ourselves in Christ is what is essential, ultimate, final, and definitive. Let me ask you one the, a, a kind of final question here, and that has to do with the final chapter of the book, which to my mind is the foundation of the whole thing, and that is that you're, you're going to describe a theology of solidarity as resolving issues of war and peace. I'm curious about that chapter and your thoughts. The way that I actually work this out is in conversation with a lecture given by Rowan Williams that is entitled The, the Uniqueness and Finality, or maybe just the Finality of Christ in a Pluralistic Society. I think that what we have to discover is a way of standing in solidarity with our neighbor that comes through having the sort of dialogue that is open to always learning about ourselves from other people. That is a strategy to overcome war by peace, because that is already an instance of the ethic of the cross forming or transforming uh, all that is wrong with us, all that is false into the ultimate good, which is a community of people existing in the love of God. Where we might be able to do that most readily and easily at this point in time is by having interfaith conversations so that we learn that we can stand in solidarity with people who don't necessarily believe the same things that we believe. And maybe we should even consider interfaith as including uh, what I take often just to be a heterodox form of Christianity, but the sec you know modern secularism. So how do we have these good conversations uh, across ideological differences? A part of what we have to do is to understand that the Christian identity is something we discover in ourselves because Christ's life is already coming alive within us, so that Christ is not somebody that we understand as an object, but as a true person in which our own personhood unfolds before us as we are in relationship with Christ. Essentially meaning that we don't have a handle really on who Jesus is, 
and that our relationship ought to be the sort that Jesus is always willing to surprise us by showing up in places we wouldn't expect. And as Rowan Williams says at one point in that lecture, we always get the vague sense that God hasn't read the right books. Uh, in other words, God isn't thinking along the way we would have him think. So if that's true, but if what we believe as Christians is also true, that the fullness of what a human being is, is to be found in Christ, we don't then want to establish any sort of two-tier version of humanity, which is to say that uh, to give into relativism, to say we Christians have one standard, or even uh, that we'll hold the Christian community to one standard, and we're not going to bother with engaging with the rest of the world because it's fall and it's based on a lie, etc. Because what essentially would be saying, if this truth is true for us and the world be damned, is that essentially we have said we're not going to worry about other people because perhaps uh, they're they're not in this relationship with Christ that would lead to them finding out that their full humanity is really defined by Christ rather than themselves. Which means that if the other, even the other that we don't agree with or doesn't think like us or is ethnically different than us or has a different belief system than us or conceives of reality differently than us is still, according to our version of reality, a human being becoming human in the image and likeness of God through Jesus Christ, we can learn something from other people, whether it's a Buddhist or a Muslim or whether it's the secular humanist, we can learn something about being human from other people if we can approach that dialogue with the sort of openness uh, that we they might have something true about our own being to offer to us in conversation. That is a format for standing in solidarity with other people. And solidarity is one of the cornerstones of Catholic social teaching. That's worked out, you know, at first in the sense of how do you address the dignity of work and how should working people be treated? Uh, and this is how happening in labor movements in the late 19th century. And the idea was that we need not to stand in solidarity with some class distinction, but stand in solidarity with each other as human beings. I think you can just extend that. But the, the idea isn't very difficult to grasp. Rather, it's how does that become a strategy for living? And that's why I try to describe it, I guess, in ways of having this conversation. Uh, it's something that has to be experienced rather than something that can simply be explained. But there, there is a, a ground for peace in the person of Christ. There is a, a ground for solidarity, where and that solidarity is not dependent upon a unified understanding, or that oh well, I am in solidarity with my Christian brothers and sisters. Maybe the picture of mission that we only recognize or realize the fullness of the gospel in taking it into a culture, a place, and culture here, I mean, we're always crossing cultural boundaries. You don't have to get on a boat or an airplane to cross cultures. Theoretically, as Christians, we're always crossing cultures. And that is the very place in which we recognize the fullness of the gospel. I think this is my experience in Japan. Being in Japan and teaching and preaching the gospel there, I think for the first time I, I came to realize what it is. 
<laughs> I think I went with a misconception, a kind of maybe a, you know, a kind of uh, maybe a typical or almost typical pietistic individualistic notion. And I, I realized that this just doesn't translate. It doesn't work in this context. And I think that's the, the thing that we're always up and against in this notion of contextualization. It's not simply that we're transforming the gospel into the context of the culture that we're encountering, but the gospel is coming back to us, having embraced that culture and addressed it. In other words, I don't think that any human culture is simply left as it is once Christ is introduced into the equation. You know, a problem with the way we always tell the story is that we imagine the missionary shows up with the unadulterated gospel and then decides how they might synchronize or contextualize it to the poor, benighted non-Christians. Uh, but in fact, the missionary shows up with an enculturated gospel mm -hmm. and probably, as you're describing your own experience, needs to learn something about what it means to be human from the people they're about to encounter. That's it. That's it. And so but two things happened, you know, and I think that's what we're describing to me in Japan. First of all, the, the thing that I encountered in Japan, the, the, the Japanese nationalism, maybe uh, forms of fascism, uh, a, a reification. Oh, then I, I looked back and I realized, oh, but that's just a mirror image of American, you know, a nationalism and Christian nationalism. So step one is that the cultures, cultures do mirror one another in that way. So, and there is the tendency, I think, in every culture toward reification, toward making the culture, the finite context, and all that that includes, the language, you know, the peculiarities of people, making that absolute. So step one is we realized, oh, culture is relative. Culture is always relative, that it's not an absolute in and of itself. And therefore, when we talk about the gospel being, you know, we're, we're teaching and preaching the gospel in this context, the picture is that we, we are simultaneously addressing the culture, not in a destructive fashion, but there is a, a restoration and, and a, a bringing out of the fullness and truth of the culture that is, in fact, an enduring truth and reality that otherwise is, is going to be absent. It must have been shocking to people to find out that they, well, at first didn't have culture when the British showed up, and then to find out they had a degenerate version of culture. Uh, you know, it must have been news to them, these people who were just living their lives. Uh, and I think that's always the danger, right? Even in the conversation, to ask the question like that, uh, is Christ for culture, against culture, uh, et cetera, the way it's been posed, is to foist something on somebody else uh, that they is probably not there. Like, go have it. This is the point of solidarity, actually. Go meet somebody as another human being and find out that you're able to communicate and what you might learn together. That's good. That's good. Have we covered it, John, or is there something else you want to address here? Oh, I think this is good. It's, a not, it's an unending conversation because the question, so I was thinking about this. It's not that there is a certain sort of theology that deals with marginaliz marginalization and restorative justice. 
any good theology is always doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and any bad theology is not. <laughs> Maybe that's the distinction. Well, it sounds like a great class, and give us the details. We're starting the class on April 17th, and we have not decided the day of the week, but we'll decide that when all of the uh, when we're all gathered and we'll get get a consensus. It runs through June 9th, am I right? The class will will meet weekly and we'll go through uh, uh, conveniently. Are there eight chapters in this book? There are. So I think perfect. you read the introduction. Okay. And uh, what will you what will you be looking for as an end product of the class? It's the end product of the class is to develop a self-understanding of what it means to be a Christian so that our theology is not simply talk about God, but is a transformation within us. All right, and people can register. The class is now open, and so you can register at will. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.